Um, on behalf of the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties section, section and the Criminal Law section of the Boston Bar Association, um, I would like to welcome you to the third live session of the BBA's multi-part program about restorative justice. My name is Anoush Katerpal and I, along with my colleagues, Andrea Kramer and Georgia Chrisley, I'm one of the co-chairs of this program series. Um, our first program featured Professor Susan Mays Rothstein, co-founder of the Institute of Restorative Initiatives, and Janet Connors, a restorative justice practitioner at the Institute and also a survivor herself that lost her son to homicide and engaged in a restorative justice dialogue with her son's killers and their mothers. Our second session featured Pastor Kim Odom of the True Vine Church in Dorchester. Pastor Odom also lost her son to gun violence and engaged in a restorative dialogue with the individual who supplied her son's killers with the gun, her son's killer with the gun, excuse me. Um, both sessions are available on the BBA's Learn Online Library, as is Georgia Chrisley's short introduction about restorative justice. If you have time to view those sessions and have not already done so, I encourage you to do so. They're all relatively short, informative, and moving. Today's session will feature the perspective of defense attorneys using or seeking the use of restorative justice for their clients. Um, so what is restorative justice? Just very briefly, restorative justice in its various forms has roots in indigenous peacemaking practices in different cultures around the world and have um, been utilized for a very long time. It's taken various forms and therefore is difficult to put a single definition on. Through the criminal justice lens, instead of seeking only to punish and confine wrongdoers, restorative justice looks to repair the harm done to the person harmed and have the person who did the harm take responsibility for their actions in a way that is productive to themselves, to the people harmed, and to their community. In 2018, um, the Massachusetts Criminal Justice Reform Act established a statutory framework for the use of restorative justice programs as a means of diversion in certain adult and juvenile proceedings in the Massachusetts trial courts. In some instances, completion of a community-based restorative justice program mandates dismissal of the criminal case, while in others, it gives a judge the authority to dismiss the case. You will hear a bit about the status of the implementation of the statute in today's talk. Um, before introducing our presenters, again, I just want to touch on a bit of housekeeping. These sessions are not intended to operate as a lecture, but rather as a dialogue between our speakers and the attendees. Therefore, we have asked our speakers to prepare short remarks, which will last about seven or eight minutes each. Once they, these remarks will be recorded and at this time only the speakers and myself will be able to be seen or heard on the screen. Once they are done, we will put a link in the chat for everyone to join us in an unrecorded Zoom room in which you will be able to see each other and participate in the discussion. Um, our speakers, I think, will also be saving some of their comments and um, portions of their discussion for that, for that second portion of this webinar. We strongly encourage you to participate at that time, as we believe these sessions are most useful when we have engagement with the attendees. So that we're not speaking over each other, I ask that you raise your hand or give me some sort of notification that you wish to speak so that I can call on you. With that, I will introduce today's presenters in the order in which they will speak. First, we have Ziad Hopkins. Ziad has worked with the Committee for Public Counsel Services since 1998. After representing adults in Suffolk Superior Court for almost five years, 
He joined CPCS's Youth Advocacy Division in the Roxbury office in 2003 as a trial attorney. Ziet has taught juvenile law and the courts at Wheelock College in the Juvenile Justice and Youth Advocacy Department. He graduated from Northeastern University School of Law. During college, he worked with the Mandela Institute based in Ramallah, Palestine, documenting the detention conditions of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Ziad is also a 2015 Ian S. Axford Fellow in Public Policy and studied the role of the defense attorney in New Zealand's juvenile justice system, a jurisdiction well known for its integration of restorative justice principles um, and which he will be talking about during his opening remarks. We are also joined by Christina Rodriguez, a trial attorney also at CPCS. Christina joined CPCS in 2016 and has since then practiced in Chelsea District Court Suffolk Superior Court, and multiple divisions of the Boston Municipal Court. Christina graduated from Harvard Law School and holds a BA in Political Science and Africana Studies from Brown University. Prior to joining CPCS, she worked at a large law firm and clerked for two federal judges. She's the proud daughter of Cape Verdean immigrants, was born in Dorchester, and loves being able to contribute to movements for justice in Boston. With that, I'm gonna, mic I'm gonna mute myself and I'm gonna ask Ziad to um, unmute himself and to um, provide us with his opening remarks. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining. And thank you to the BBA and Anuj for inviting me to participate in this series. Um, and thank you to the previous presenters, Professor Mays Rothstein, Janet Connors, and Pastor Odom. I certainly learned a lot from them. And like I think any self-respecting attorney will probably borrow from some of their phrasings and thoughts in, in our discussion today. I'm hoping to talk about three topics today, the first of which I'll talk about in the opening remarks. I'm hoping to talk about my experience in New Zealand. As Anoush said, I spent about eight months in New Zealand on a fellowships, learning about their, how they integrated restorative justice into their youth justice system. I also wanna talk about, it, mostly in the discussion period, opportunities to use restorative justice in our practice here in Massachusetts and how we can think about being creative and use the resources we have available. And then also in that time, issues and concerns that we should be thinking about as defense attorneys. And I hopefully will flag some of those when I talk about the New Zealand system for further discussion in, in the brown bag portion or the discussion portion of today's program. So the New Zealand youth justice system. There is a certain mythology about New Zealand and restorative justice circles, which you may have heard about um, that in some ways it's earned and in some ways I think we should not over romanticize what happened in New Zealand. Uh, it, it is a place where restorative justice has developed and thrived, but I will not say that it was intentional in any way. When they revised their legislation for dealing with young people in conflict with the law, so people, young people accused of committing a crime, they did that in 1989. And it's like a 300 page le legislative document and not, in any place in that document do they ever use the phrase restorative justice. Not one place. The only time that got added was in 2017 when there were a couple of amendments, which is even after when I was there in 2015. So they kind of backed into this restorative justice. It wasn't really sort of planned as a restorative justice project. Um, and the legislation was an attempt to change a form of law that we're very used to here in Massachusetts, New Zealand is a European settler society like the United States, which means, and 
primarily from England. So it also has an Anglo tradition of the law. So it's very familiar to any attorney if they go there, it will seem, you know, like you're looking at it through like glasses that are slightly blurry, but you can kind of figure it all out. Like it's quite familiar to us. And after about, after a long period in the 70s and 80s of agitation by the indigenous people of New Zealand who are known as the Maori, um, who were very uh, understandably upset that many of their children were taken away by social welfare and youth justice or juvenile justice systems dominated by European New Zealanders, that they were being taken away out of the home and put in foster homes or residential homes or detention facilities, there was a big movement to change that project. So it's really tied to community organizing and even really tied to the anti-apartheid movement. There was a huge uh, tour of New Zealand of the South African rugby team in the early 80s as sort of the heart of apartheid. And they shut down the tour, which embarrassed the South African government, emboldened the anti-apartheid activists in South Africa, and even led to this legislation. So it's, it's a really interesting international political thing, but we shouldn't over-romanticize it. It's only for juveniles in New Zealand. It's not like New Zealand is this like mecca of restorative justice for everybody. It's, only lim it's limited to juveniles. But what I love about that history, even though we shouldn't over-romanticize sort of the indigenous practices and, um, and the mythology of it all, is that it shows that with some organizing and thoughtfulness and engaged people, we can reimagine what our justice system looks like. And they really have managed to figure out a way to integrate restorative justice principles into the procedure. And that's what I wanna talk about. So before we can understand how the New Zealand procedure, criminal trial procedure for young people, which is similar to adult for adults as it is here in Massachusetts, um, was changed, Let's just sort of review what I like to think of, and I don't mean to sort of be very simple about this, but there are three people that matter in the courtroom, the prosecutor, the judge, and the, and the defendant or the young person slash defense attorney. And each of them have a certain card or a power to play. The prosecutor gets to decide whether and what to charge somebody with. The judge gets to decide your liberty, this um, punishment essentially, how can they deny your liberty? What punishment can they impose on you? And the accused or the client or the defense attorney has the power to put the government to its burden of proof and to remain silent and say, prove it. Those are sort of the powers. And what the New Zealand system does is it doesn't so much as take those powers away, but it deactivates them. You, they can't essentially be used until a restorative justice circle is attempted to resolve the matter. And so it sort of flips procedure on its head. It almost put, makes it backward, which is a very intriguing idea. So the prosecutor no longer has the unfettered discretion to charge. The judge no longer has the total say over disposition. And the accused can't just remain silent and put the government to its burden. Now, that last part for defense attorney, they might say, oh, hold on, what are you talking about? So let me, let me explain that in a little bit more detail. New Zealand created a procedural mechanism, a procedural space in a sense, called the Family Group Conference, which you may have heard as a phrase, but it's in that conference where restorative practices take place. And so who participates in that? 
like Anoush said in the beginning, he described and gave an overview of restorative justice. And of course, there's reams of academic papers on what it is and when it's authentic and when it's not authentic and all that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's all interesting. But for our purposes, there's a harmed person and there's a person who's responsible for the harm. So the people who participate in this procedural piece, the family group conference that we don't have in our procedure is the young person and his or her family. And I really wanna emphasize and his or her family because it's based in a community family unit. The person who's harmed, so what we would normally call in, in Massachusetts, the victim or the, or the complaining witness, the young person's attorney, a police prosecutor, and the facilitator who's a government employee whose job it is to facilitate these family group conferences. And there's absolutely no prescribed format. There's a practice and there's a, over 30 years of doing this, there's sort of a set of protocols that make sense for the situation. And one of the things that we learned from this is that preparation ahead of time is very important. So that's a big role for attorneys to prepare a young person to enter into this conference. Um, it's not a litigation of facts. Like Anoush says, there's part of the preparation includes a sort of agreement about what the accused person, what the person who is responsible for the harm, what it is that they are taking responsibility for. And so there has to be some sort of acknowledgement that there is a taking a responsibility of something that happened. Um, and so that's another place where defense attorneys can kind of shape what it is that someone's actually taking responsible for. And the victim in, in these family group conferences can be there, but is not required to be there, which is also an interesting idea to talk about in the brown bag. In other words, the victim or the complaining witness does not have veto power over, in a sense, whether a restorative practice takes place. They're invited to, but they're not required to attend. Um, everything that happens in the family group conference, the discussion of how to deal with the harm is confidential. The other part that's required is that the young person and his or her family and whoever else they want, but it could just be limited to that, have private time to come up with what they think is an appropriate solution to repair the harm. That proposal then is presented to the rest of the parties, the defense attorney, the police prosecutor, the victim, the facilitator, and other people who can sometimes join, which I won't get into that level of detail. And then you get into, so that's, that's the who and the how, and then the what comes out of it is if there's consensus on what the plan is, and we know consensus is hard to come to sometimes, there's a specific plan to address the harm. And one of the things that's very uh, attractive about the New Zealand system is how concrete the plans are, are expected to be. They're supposed to be short, swift, and particular. And from someone who represents juveniles, this is the part that I think is very helpful, assigned adults who are supposed to help the young person complete the plan and various aspects of it. So I can't see all of you, but like I'll, a news will be assigned to say, well, you're supposed to help with mowing the, 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 the person's lawn. You're going to help get the lawnmower for the, for, for, for the young person to repair the harm by mowing the lawn. I'm just making that up. But what that does is it brings in adults to help uh, support the young person. And the only thing that's shared out of the circle is the plan itself. 
So all that sounds like very traditional restorative justice, but like I said, they never even use that phrase when they discuss what, how a family group conference works. The exciting part for, from my point of view is when this happens in the procedure. If you think about our system, we essentially have four stages of a criminal trial case. You sort of have the charges and arraignment, you know, bail and all that kind of stuff. You have discovery, you have evidentiary motions sometimes, but let's just assume that they're there. And then you have the trial. So you have those four stages. So where does the family group conference fit into this is very important. And in New Zealand, they essentially in their legislation privilege restorative justice over this criminal trial process. So before the police are even allowed to file charges, if they think they wanna file charges, if they think they can't just deal with something in an informal way, that's a whole different topic. But if they wanna file charges, they essentially have to get permission from the family group conference to do it, which is really what that means is the young person has an opportunity to try to resolve this matter at a family group conference before charges even get filed. If a young person is brought to court, let's say they're arrested, right? It does happen, even in New Zealand, people get arrested and they're brought to court for what we would think of as their arraignment. The young person has this like third type of plea, not guilty, not, not, not guilty, but something called not denied, which essentially is judge, stop. I wanna go try to deal with this in a family group conference. There's a third time that you have a family group conference, which can be after a trial and, it, and it's used to inform the judge of what is the appropriate sentence, but we sort of won't get into that. But the when of the family group conference, you can see what it does from sort of a bureaucratic point of view. And I know this is like really kind of like nerdy in a weird sort of way, but it's what it does is legislatively, it privileges restorative justice over due process. But I just want to comment on, well, why would you do that? Like, don't we love due process? Isn't it like the, the, the best thing in the world? And I love due process, right? I love, you know, that's why I became a lawyer. I believe in it. I'm not saying don't believe in it. But I think one of the things that has happened in New Zealand by having this legislation and, and creating almost like this sort of fifth procedural stage of a case and then preloading it to what we would think of as a normal case and privileging restorative justice is um, it offers benefits, all the benefits that we've heard of restorative justice. It's procedural justice. It's empowering families and, and young people. It's quick and targeted. It is good for victims. There's a high victim satisfaction of resolving matters sort of much more quickly and in a much more personal manner. Um, so there are real benefits, not only to, def to defendants and young people, but also the community in sort of addressing things quickly and immediately. Um, and it doesn't eliminate the due process path at all. So if you sort of think of, I think sometimes we get into this false dichotomy. It's like, it's either restorative justice and it's like this beautiful rainbows and unicorns and we're all gonna work things out as a community, which I'm all for that, trust me, um, or it's due process. So it's either or. And I think one of the ways that New Zealand has, has like figured out, not that there aren't like bumps in the road, but certainly in a lot more elegant way than we have, a way to have both and. So both the community, authentic community engagements and due process protections at the same time. Um, 
by essentially, I mean, in some ways, putting the disposition first. And so without getting into like, what does that mean for defense lawyers? What does that mean for our notions of due process? I'll just make two comments on the Julian system before I end, which is that there is a culture of sort of being sincere and authentic about trying to do this. And part of that means is there's an expectation that young people have, as we would say here, essentially full discovery before this even happens so that people are entering into the situation with open eyes. And at least with youth, there's an expectation that the police act quickly and not come at, come at something months and months later and say, I think we want to take you to court on this. Essentially, they're working at the time frame of an adolescent. If you have an issue, deal with it quickly and effectively through a family group conference. And if you can't figure it out that way, then we move to the due process uh, pattern. So I hope that we can have more discussion about this in the brown bag. Thank you. Thanks, Ziad. Um, I now invite Christina to unmute her mic and um, she's gonna talk about her um, research about restorative justice in Massachusetts. Thank you, Anush. Thank you for planning this. I'm actually gonna start ironically by saying that I'm not an expert. Um, I'm someone with a lot of ideas, a lot of questions, and a lot of interests in learning and building around restorative justice. And my interest in restorative justice is driven by something that is crystal clear to me. And it's that the quickness with which we are currently entrapping young people in the criminal system and imposing heavy incarceration, it's not working. It's not making us safer. It's not reducing crime. And it's not leading to just outcomes. In fact, our system's treatment of people under 26, data shows that it's driving both recidivism and racial disparities in the criminal system right here in Massachusetts. Given that, and given the current political climate, given what the public is asking for in terms of addressing harms in the systems, and given this nation's history, why wouldn't we at least be open to considering alternative paths for responding to harm. And to me, restorative justice is just that, an alternative approach to repairing harm and addressing misconduct that could be absolutely transformational for individuals and their communities. And I think restorative justice is sorely needed in our adult state courts. And I'm currently working with a few others on a proposal to create a restorative justice program focused on emerging adults, individuals 18 to 26, and our state adult court system. And before I get into more of that, I do think it's important for me to say a little bit more about myself, um, because I think it is a part of where I'm coming from on this. I'm a public defender. I'm a Christian. I'm a resident and community member of Roxbury. I'm someone who comes from a Black immigrant family that's been deeply affected by the criminal and deportation systems. We've been affected as both what the system would describe as victims and offenders. And I'm someone whose job every day is to get close to and gain the trust of individuals who are caught in the criminal system, to get to know their families, their stories, their pains, their dreams, their hopes, the very bits of information that constitute their humanity. So all of those pieces of my identity, my work and my background contribute to my belief 
that it's time to consider more just humanity affirming, safety increasing responses to addressing misconduct and violence, especially, though not exclusively, on the part of young people. And I'll give an example of how I think this might play out and why the need to me feels so acute. And I think the context of gun violence is very telling. We can all agree, I'm sure, I certainly believe, that gun violence is a massive problem deserving of attention. For decades, our societal idea of addressing gun violence is to increase the penalties for and make mandatory incarceration for gun-related offenses, including possession. But let's look at what mandatory minimums for first-time gun possession charges can look like on the ground. And I'd offer the example, one I haven't made up, a, case, a fact print I've actually seen in a case I've worked on, of a 19-year-old who's found sitting on a park bench on which officers also find a gun in a stray backpack. This person's one year removed from high school. Officers arrest him, send him directly to adult court because he happens to be past his 18th birthday. After some months of court dates, he's found guilty. And because there's a mandatory minimum on gun possession, even for a first time offender with no record, he's shipped off to the South Bay House of Corrections to serve a year and a half of custody. And the key question to me here is, how many problems have we as a society solved by our collective decision to incarcerate and respond to that situation? And just as importantly, how many problems have we created? Because if we look in at what happens to that 19 year old after the mandatory minimum sentence is imposed, there are some things worth paying attention to. While he's in jail, he has no choice but to spend lots of time with people much older than him who've been in and out of jail for decades, people even charged with murder. He's gonna spend some of the most formative years of complex brain development in an environment with regular documented outbreaks of violence, extreme surveillance, down to regularly occurring strip searches, and extreme isolation. His loved ones will likely spend that year and a half pouring whatever money they have into putting money into his jail account and into paying for very expensive jail calls to staying in touch with him, if he's lucky. His family might also have to clean up outstanding court fees. Rather than have him at home as a 19 year old, progressing in his education or starting to build a career, he's now gonna become an expense to his family as they support him while he's incarcerated. And at the end of that 18 month sentence, he's gonna come out of South Bay House of Corrections, virtually unemployable for good career building living wage jobs. He'll be entering his twenties with the scarlet letter of a felony conviction and a massively disrupted education. Most federal scholarships will be out of reach for him categorically. Bonds he may have had with guidance counselors, sports coaches, teachers, pastors, other sources of positive support, those bonds might be fractured if not gone altogether. If he previously lived with his family in public housing, he's probably now displaced because so many public housing offices ban people with convictions from their leases. And to be frank, once he's out of jail, the economy that will be most eager to hire him, to recruit him, is the illegal economy. So it leaves us with that question. 
are we as a community now safer because that young person spent a year and a half in jail? The science is clear that brains are developing until 26 years old. Adulthood does not magically happen until at one's 18th birthday. Adulthood is a gradual process that occurs in your 20s over the course of that decade. And young people, because their brains are still literally physically developing, have a unique capacity for rehabilitation, for developing new skills, for responding to affirmation, and to veering into a better path. The data is also clear that throwing young people in jail only increases any recklessness they might have. According to the Council of State Governments Justice Center, teenagers and young adults incarcerated in Massachusetts adult correctional facilities that is incarcerated in jails and prisons with people much older than them have a 55% reconviction rate. That means if you go to South Bay today and at random pick two 19 year olds who are incarcerated, the data shows that one of those two will be back. But worse than that, it's not all young people who are currently being jailed for their youthful recklessness. The Emerging Adult Justice Project at Columbia University has found that young black people between 18 and 26 are incarcerated at eight times the rate of their white peers. Racial disparities in incarceration peak at this age group. In Massachusetts, unfortunately, is above average in this regard. According to the Sentencing Project, Massachusetts has the sixth worst black to white disparity in youth incarceration, with black youth being incarcerated at a whopping 10 times the rate of white youth in Massachusetts. Put another way, that data shows that what we're currently doing to respond to young people between 18 and 26 is fueling both recidivism and racial disparities for the whole criminal system. The jailing of black men between 18 and 26 is not just part of racial disparities or racism in the criminal system, it's literally driving those disparities. If we want to address racism in the criminal system, it's not optional. We have to look at what's happening to young black and brown people who are fed into the adult system when they're still literally teenagers, 18 and 19. But those of us who are in the state courtrooms as lawyers, as prosecutors, as defense attorneys, as probation officers, as family members, of loved ones, as defendants, don't really need to hear that in the data because it's even more clear when you walk into the courtrooms. The skin color and age of those who are being jailed for firearm possession and drug distribution charges is obvious. The skin color and ages of those who are being held ever more frequently for dangerousness under those charges is also obvious. For all of those reasons, I'd return to what I started with. What we're currently doing in response to youthful recklessness is not working. The weight is falling heaviest on black and brown youth from poor over-policed communities, and it's not reducing crime, and it's not increasing justice. And that's why I think we need to seriously at least consider, be open to the benefits of restorative justice in our state courts. Which brings me to a proposal that I'm currently working on, 
with uh, Tavon Robinson, an absolutely incredible community activist who had his own life changed by going through restorative justice. Um, he and Jessica Hedges, his attorney, are going to be speakers in the later series, a later panel in this series, excuse me. The two of them, myself and Judge Blitzman, have been working together on a proposal to introduce restorative justice into our local state courts. And I'll offer the briefest description of our proposal um, for now. Um, it's modeled after the restorative justice program that's already succeeding in Massachusetts federal courts. It's called RISE. It's also modeled after the extraordinary work of New York-based nonprofit Common Justice. Um, that is one of the organizations leading the messaging around the power of restorative justice. The example of those two shows that restorative justice is capable of handling serious charges and achieving incredible outcomes for both victims and defendants alike. Our specific proposal is for restorative justice-based diversion program for defendants between 18 and 26, divert them away from incarceration. These defendants would engage in intensive restorative justice for 12 months rather than serving a jail sentence. Each defendant would participate in restorative justice circles that would be led by qualified community members, would include an impacted person, a direct victim or a surrogate victim, and would include the defendant's sources of support. As a group, they would come up with a restorative plan aimed at repairing the harm caused. The defendant would complete the restorative plan in the process, engage in intense introspection on himself and his community. In addition, under our proposal, each defendant would create an economic empowerment plan, a plan for sustainable personal financial fulfillment and independence. Plans could range from identifying a career of choice and entering into uh, the study of that at a local community college or joining with two trusted neighbors to set out a five-year plan or together purchasing and running a local business in their neighborhood. This economic piece we consider critical because we know that poverty and lack of economic opportunity are central drivers in criminal conduct. I'll close by returning to the example of the 19-year-old convicted of possession of that gun on the park bench. How about if instead of throwing him into the local jail, we engaged with him, we pulled him in closer. We held him accountable, but without pushing him further into criminality. We allowed him to actually learn about the very real harm caused by illegal guns, to hear directly from his own community members who have been affected by gun violence, how about we allowed him to take meaningful responsibility for his actions, to apologize and atone, to step up as a leader in his community by repairing the harm? What if we allowed him to get emotional community-based support he might need for his own unaddressed childhood trauma so that it doesn't continue to trigger him in the future? What if we had him consider why he might be drawn to crowds that he might have been hanging out with and helped him identify better ways for addressing any legitimate safety concerns he might have? What if we built a career plan with him, actually supported him in finding a career building job? What if we learned about and strengthened his community ties, his sources of support rather than rupturing them? According to a 2006, excuse me, according to a 2016 Massachusetts Inc. study, Massachusetts pays $50,000 per year to incarcerate each inmate. 
for an 18 year old doing a year and a half sentence for a gun possession charge, that's $75,000 of taxpayer dollars spent. What if we took a fraction of those tax dollars and invested them in healing the person and in the process, making their whole community safer? Thanks, Christina. Um, at this point, we are going to be posting in the chat function um, the link to the Zoom room in which we can all um, join. And so I hope you all join us there. I just did, before we all hop over there, I just wanted to quickly mention, Christina mentioned that Jessica Hedges and Tavon Robinson will be um, speaking at a future session. Um, they will be speaking on April 26th. And um, you, there are a BBA's um, shout out about that has already been sent out and there will be more information about that provided soon. Um, and at this point, I invite everyone to come over to the Zoom room and we can talk further about um, your ex experiences within with restorative justice itself. See you over there. <laughs>